Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show for you today, but first, I want to ask you for a favor. Please subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, that is. Also, take a second to rate and review our show in your podcast app, especially if you're a regular listener. That will help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. is happiness? Is it something some people have and others just don't? Is it a lucky state that comes about rarely when things go your way and there's no sadness, anger, or worry in your life? Or is it a skill you can work at, like playing a piano or sinking a three-pointer? Our guest, Natalie Kogan, creator of The Happier Method, says happiness is definitely something you can create for yourself, and she shares the blueprint for how to go about it in her book, Happier Now. Natalie, welcome to Health Now. Thanks so much for having me. So grateful to be here. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. Um, If you wouldn't mind, first start off by describing what is the happier method. So the happier method is based um, on the core idea uh, of your happiness and your health, your emotional health, um, being skills, being something that you can practice. And the happier method is a way to help you practice and cultivate your happiness as a skill. And it's Um, Something I created based on my own personal experience of really struggling for most of my life to um, not just feel happy, but just to feel even a moment of contentment. And the whole idea is that once you reframe your happiness as a skill, it gives you access to begin wherever you are, right? Um, Some of us are generally more positive people. We all have a happiness baseline, right? Some people are generally more positive than others, but wherever you are at, if you reframe your happiness as a skill, these, this method, these skills, all you need to do is practice. It meets you wherever you're at. That's interesting because I feel like a lot of people think of happiness as something that happens to them instead of something that they are yeah. sort of, they have a role to play in, I suppose. Absolutely. And if I may just add to this happiness baseline. So research shows that um, this happiness baseline that we all have contributes only about 50% of how you feel. So the other 50% is within our control. And interesting that our circumstances, you know, where we live, how much money we make, where we're from, they contribute less than 10%. I definitely was caught in that mindset as well. And I know it's very common for folks, but research actually actually shows us that, um, yes, our genetics play a role, our circumstances play a role, but 50% of our emotional health is something that we can control and can cultivate and can improve, which is why I think it's so empowering to reframe it as a skill. And describe what are the specific skills that you are practicing? And is it like playing the piano where the more you do it, the better you get at it? Yes, it's, it's actually a great way to think about it. And I'm going to uh, share the five skills, but I love that, that you brought up piano. My daughter, she's 15, and she's been playing piano for 10 years. And it's actually a perfect example because after 10 years, as you can imagine, she has a baseline, right, of skills. She can, she, she has a foundation. But over the summer, when she doesn't practice at all, she gets much worse. And when she practices consistently, she gets a lot better. And so it's actually a great analogy. So the five skills are, the first is the skill of acceptance. And I define acceptance as the skill of learning how to look at how something is, how a situation is, and how you feel with clarity instead of judgment. And then using that as your starting point to decide what to do next. Um, 
so acceptance is the opposite of um, I should, or this is not how it should be, right? The second skill is gratitude. And um, it's probably the most familiar uh, concept to many of us. Um, but I define the skill of gratitude as zooming in and actively focusing on small moments that you appreciate in your everyday life and sharing your gratitude with other people. The third skill is intentional kindness. And I know folks sometimes get surprised when I talk about kindness as a skill, because, you know, we all know kindness is good for, you know, good to do random acts of kindness, right? Most of us think of us as of ourselves as kind people. But what I'm talking about is the intentional practice of kindness defined as doing something to elevate or support or help another person and not expecting anything in return. And that second part is actually the part we need to practice a lot around. The fourth skill is what I call the bigger why, and it's the skill of connecting to our sense of purpose, but not in the abstract, but more by understanding how the things we do every day for work, at home, in our personal lives, to take care of others, how the things we do every day, how do they help someone else? How do they, con how do they contribute? to um, something bigger than ourselves, which is where most of us find purpose. And finally, the fifth skill is self-care. And, you know, whenever I say self-care, I think it's easy to think of like massages and spas, and I think all of that is wonderful. But I define the skill of self-care um, in a slightly different way. I define it as a skill of cultivating a kinder relationship with yourself and treating yourself as you would a friend. And so it includes things like taking breaks, um, you know, fueling your mind and your body and um, treating yourself in a compassionate way. And so those are the five skills in the happier method. Interesting. Do negative emotions still serve a role or is it like, you know, sort of like everything in moderation, including negative emotions that come up sometimes? It's a great question. Um, you know, one of the um, one of the core mindset shifts that I had to make in my experience um, to allow me to actually experience joy in the present moment and manage stress better. Um, and one of the core mindset shifts that I ask people to make as part of practicing the happier method is to recognize that being happier does not mean that you feel positive all the time. You know, I think it's actually one of the, um, one of the traps that is so easy to fall into. I know I was in it. Um, where we feel, you know, like we have this thing in the culture of like, turn that frown upside down or, you know, turn the negative into the positive. And so we feel that if we allow ourselves to feel, you know, quote unquote, negative emotions, that we're somehow failing at, you know, being happier, failing at living the good life. But Right. That's that concept of, of like toxic positivity that a lot of people are talking about lately. Like being exactly. happy and positive exactly. no matter what else is going on in your experience. Exactly. And the thing is, you know, we as human beings are not meant to feel positive all the time. We are meant to have this rich variety of emotions. And um, research shows that when you allow yourself to experience a difficult emotion, I really try not to call them negative, but a difficult emotion, right? Stress, fear, regret, worry, sadness. When you allow yourself to feel it without trying to escape it, right, Netflix, you know, social media, eating too much, drinking too much, we all have our coping mechanisms. But when you allow yourself to actually experience the difficult feeling, you feel it for a shorter amount of time and with less intensity. Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, said that which you resist persists. 
and it's very true, when we try to um, not feel something, when we try to not feel a difficult feeling, it doesn't go away. It actually just festers. And so one of the core um, principles that I teach, that I practice, that really for me changed my life and it's part of the happier method is to recognize um, that the goal is not to always feel positive, that true emotional well-being means that we learn how to embrace the full range of human emotions. That makes sense. To that point, uh, obviously there are always going to be challenging situations that arise or, or like you say, difficult emotions that come up. But then there's the other side of um, that, which is uh, we live in a world where a lot of folks are diagnosed with things like, you know, medical conditions like depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you balance the call to be happy with those kinds of medical uh, conditions that really kind of put a major barrier in, in the way of that? Well, you know, it's, it, it's a great question because it goes right, to, you know, to the core of what we've been talking about, right? As human beings, you know, some of us, um, you know, depression is a medical condition, right? It's a chemical condition actually in the brain. And so, you know, there's chemistry going on in the brain that does not allow you to, it makes it very difficult to experience positive emotions, which is why I think it's so essential to get out of the cult of positivity, And, um, you know, a lot of the skills that I've talked about that I teach, like gratitude, they have been used um, by psychologists in combination with, for example, anti-depression medication, and they make the treatment more successful. But again, the goal isn't to, you know, be happy-go-lucky or positive all the time. The goal is really for us as humans to be what I call in agreement with ourselves and our lives, to not feel like we're constantly struggling and you know, if you're at what I call baseline, right, if things are kind of okay in your life, you know, you don't have a medical condition, then you can use these skills to feel better, right, to manage your stress a little better, to, yes, find a little bit more joy. But if you're someone, as you say, you know, who has depression or has who has anxiety, then when you practice these skills, you're not trying to, you know, be full of sunshine every day. You're trying to get to that baseline. You're just trying to feel a little bit more okay. And so, I think it's a great question to fuel the discussion that, you know, the goal isn't to be smiling all the time, right? If you search for happiness, if you search for happiness as an image, right, on Google image search, you get like these bright smiling individuals. And I have nothing against smiling. I think it's wonderful. And by the way, when you genuinely smile, you help yourself feel a little better. We can't fake ourselves into it. But life is hard, right? We're human beings. We have so much going on. We may have a medical condition, you know, regular life is hard, right? Juggling work and family or just, you know, being a parent is really hard. And so if we allow ourselves to not have this goal of, I need to be positive all the time, when we relax our expectations and in fact, begin to embrace the full range of emotions and not struggle with our difficult emotions so much, we actually experience more ease and more joy. So then most people, I think, have different facets of life, like, you know, there's your home life, there's your work life, uh, mm-hmm. social life. And does this does the happier method, is it different depending on the situation that you're in? Or, you know, what if you're happy at home and don't have much trouble there, but, you know, work is horrible? Like, how do you, does the method change depending on uh, which situation you find yourself in? One of the core foundations of um, how I look at, you know, the different parts of your life is at the end of the day, you're a human being, right? And, you know, 
if you have um, a really great job and you're happy in your job, but your child is struggling with something, I'm a parent, right? You're not going to, you know, it impacts you because we're really just one human being going through the different uh, parts of our lives. And so the skills are universal. About half of my work is actually working with people at companies, with leaders, with teams. We have a whole Happier at Work program where we do teach these skills and actionable ways to practice them together with your colleagues or for yourself at work. But really, they're universal. So Hmm. it's really about understanding that, you know, we're one human being and we travel through these different phases of our lives. To give you an example, right, you know, I brought up gratitude, one of the skills a couple of times, right? The skill of really focusing on and actively appreciating small little moments that we may otherwise take for granted. Well, every time you practice gratitude, your brain releases serotonin and dopamine. These are two neurotransmitters that make you feel really good. So if you're practicing gratitude at work, for example, you're giving yourself that benefit. You're noticing more good moments in your day. You're feeling better. Then you show up at home in this other part of your life as someone who has better energy, who feels more fueled through your practice of gratitude. So you bring that energy with you and you're likely, because our emotions as human beings are contagious, you're going to share that with your family. So you're uplifting your family and yourself in that context. One of the greatest gifts of my work is seeing how people take the skills they may learn at work, practice them with their families, and vice versa, and they feel the benefits. So if someone is uh, using these skills, uh, applying you know, these tools to their situation, but it's just not uh, improving, or there are things you know, maybe outside of their control that are really preventing them from attaining that level of happiness, how do you know... Or what do you what do you tell people when it might be time to just, you know, move on from that situation, whether it's maybe a relationship or, uh, you know, some other commitment? How do you know when it's time to just sort of let it go? You know, it's it's a great question. Um, and it's uh, it, it's a global it's a big question, right? It's hard to answer briefly. But the thing that I um, have learned both from my own experience of really shifting my emotional health and working with so many people is that before we can know what the best thing is to do about a relationship, about a work situation, we need to cultivate our own emotional health in the moment. So we need to be at our best capacity to make the right decision. And the, the skill of acceptance is actually a really powerful one. And, um, you know, when something goes wrong, let's take something really small, right? Like you get on the road, you're driving to work, and there's too, so much traffic. There's much more traffic than there usually is. And you're going to be late to your meeting. And, you know, we all start to stress out, obviously, naturally. And that moment, we have a choice, right? We have a choice to either get lost in the stress and upsetness, or we can practice acceptance, right? Acceptance really has two pieces. The first is, can we look at the situation with clarity rather than judgment? Well, the clarity is there's a lot of traffic today. I'm going to be late to my meeting, right? Judgment would be, Um, oh my God, I hate this traffic. Oh my God, this is not how it should be. You know, all of that. And then that's the first step. And the second step is given how things are, what is the best thing I can do? What is the best next step that I can take to um, serve myself, to serve the situation, to serve other people who may be involved, right? So in the traffic example, you may say, okay, there's a lot of traffic. I'm going to be late to my meeting. Okay, what is the best thing I can do given that's the situation? Well, let me call, make sure they know I'm late. And then since there's nothing I can do about the traffic, let me listen to this audio book to help me calm down or let me listen to some music. And I think it's the same practice in 
you know, if you are really upset about your work situation or you're really upset in a relationship, if you can get yourself to a place of seeing things clearly, you're then better equipped to make the right decision to say, you know what? this is how things are. The best thing I can do going forward is to look for a different job or a different relationship. Or when you get to that place of clarity, because you're not caught up in the judgment, you're not caught up in a big dramatic story that our brain loves to make up. You may say, you know what? It actually wasn't, it, it's not as bad as my mind made it to be. Maybe there's a small shift I can make within it. And so I think the practice skill of acceptance and practicing it is really essential to practice before we make these big global decisions in our lives. That makes sense. At the end of the day, who decides what your happiness is? I think, to, I mean, to the point you were making earlier, if you, you know, do a Google image search for happiness, it's a bunch of really bright, smiling people. Maybe that's not everyone's definition mm-hmm. of happiness. So how do exactly. you sort of find out, you know, what happiness can look like for you, I guess? It's a great question. And, you know, there's a reason I brought up the image search because, um, you know, uh, we are obviously influenced by our environments and people around us. And it's I know I was in this trap. Like I really I really struggled. You know, I came to this country. I was a refugee. Um, I was 13. I had a really tough beginning and I struggled a lot. And I constantly felt like I wasn't doing the right thing because I couldn't feel good all the time. And I know so many people feel that way. Ultimately, the decision is yours, right? As you said, for some people, happiness means a sense of contentment. For some people, it means feeling at peace. For some people, it means being excited. And so you as a human being is the only person who can judge. And I think that it's very easy for us. And I, again, speak from a lot of personal experience it's easy to get swayed by, you know, what we are told or measurements of things. But ultimately, I think if we get to, you know, just a moment of honesty with ourselves and you ask yourself, well, how do I feel? How do I want to feel? Um, Whatever that answer is, it is correct for you. And so I think part of um, part of this experience, part of practicing the method, part of my journey, part of what I try to help folks do is recognize that, there isn't some like euphoric state of being that you're supposed to achieve your way into. The adaptability of us as human beings means that even if we achieve the goals that we have and we feel good for, you know, really excited for a while, after a while that little bubble of excitement pops because that just becomes our new normal. So if we can recognize that there isn't some metric, there isn't some checklist, right? That once we check off all the things, we feel amazing all the time and we, again, look at emotional health and happiness as our ability to embrace all of our emotions, our ability to be moving through life with a little more ease and contentment, and that we are ultimately the judge of what does it mean for us to feel good. I think that allows us a broader surface area to actually find whatever happiness means to us. Do you find that some people, uh, you know, in this age where, you know, social media uh, breeds such a, a an urge to compare yourself to others or to say, those people look really happy. Why don't I feel that way? Do you find that it's a lot more difficult for people to really look inward and define, figure out what really makes them happy without necessarily looking outward at what 
others look like when they're happy? I think it's true. And there's been a lot of research that shows, you know, my daughter is a teenager. So I look at that research about teens a lot. And there's definitely research that shows that passive consumption of social media. So all the scrolling, right, that we're all doing when you're just passively looking at other people's lives and you're comparing this very curated, very selected, um, very pretty version of someone's life to your reality, it's very easy. You know, comparison is the enemy of joy. It's very easy to get to a place where you're like, oh, my God, they're so happy and I'm not. Interestingly, research shows that when we engage on social media, and this is something like I talk to my daughter about this all the time, when we engage, when we um, interact with people, when we comment on people, when we try to do something helpful on social media, it actually elevates how we feel because at the core of being happy is having a sense of human connection. That's why intentional kindness is a skill. Um, but having said that, it definitely is because, you know, we're in this world where um, there's a lot of uh, evidence around us of, oh, look, these people are so happy or, you know, it's this very polished and created way. So it does become more challenging. And this is why practice, uh, this is why I think having this toolkit that you can rely on is so essential. And, you know, I didn't mention it as a separate skill, but it's really um, part of each of the skills I mentioned is a practice of awareness, of self-awareness, is a practice of, I even teach this to people, of just checking in with yourself of, well, how am I feeling, right? Outside of every, outside of the outside world, how am I feeling? Mm -hmm. What is something I need to do right now to feel, you know, a little better, a little less stressed? It is really important to actively practice that because as you said, all of this influence and images and examples from the outside world can get us stuck in this comparison uh, mindset that essentially makes it impossible to actually feel good about our own lives. You've created the happier method. You've written books about it. You speak about it. Do you feel a lot of pressure <laughs> to be happy all the time? <laughs> do, or do you like worry um, about people you know, like catching you in a bad moment? No, <laughs> It's a great question. Um, I will tell you this, you know, I started the company Happier, the company that I run um, a while ago, eight years ago now. And initially we focused exclusively on gratitude. We focused on tech. We had a mobile app. Before I went through a really difficult time in my life, I um, became very burnt out. I, uh, it was really, really um, tough. I mean, I, I don't know all the right words about it, but it was the darkest time in my life. I really thought that everything that was valuable to me, my marriage, my life, my company was going to be gone. And what I had to, it wasn't an easy lesson to learn, but I learned in that experience is that any one thing is not enough. So just because I was practicing gratitude and teaching gratitude to so many people, I wasn't practicing any kind of self-compassion. For example, I was so harsh towards myself. And so my path out of that really created the method and the multiple skills. And the reason I mentioned that is because until that point, I really did look at happiness as being positive all the time. And I did feel I was failing at it if I wasn't feeling good. And I felt like a total fraud running a company called happier. But when I recognized that it's not about smiling all the time, that it's actually about practicing it as a skill and embracing myself as a human being, it, it wasn't easy but I, over time, um, began to really be open about some of my own challenges, and I still am. If you look at me on social media, on you know Instagram, or if you read my book, 
I talk a lot about the challenges that I have still because I'm a human being just like you. Just because I teach people these skills doesn't mean I get them right 100% of the time. And so I would say now um, I definitely get this question a lot from folks. People ask me, like, oh, are you a naturally happy person? And I actually love to share that I'm not. I love to share that my baseline is actually really low. You know, I always say I'm a tortured Russian Jewish immigrant, right? Like I grew up, the religion in my family was suffering. Like the women in my family excel at suffering. The way we express love to each other was to suffer. You know, when my grandma, she's passed away a couple of years ago, my grandpa is still alive. He's 95, but my grandma was an incredible cook. And she would make these really like complicated, incredible meals and then part of our experience of the meal was hearing how much she suffered making it. You know, she would tell us how exhausted she was and that she almost had a heart attack. And, and by the way, it didn't even come out well. And we had to sit there and be like, oh, my God, yes, that's terrible. So what I've learned in my experience and the DNA I have in my family is the way you express love is you suffer with someone, right? And so my baseline, my happiness baseline is actually really low. So I actually have to really, really practice these skills to, you know, feel okay in my life. And I love sharing that because um, I am not someone who is naturally happy. I'm not like my husband, who, as I mentioned, he's more content. And so, you know, if these skills can really work for me, they can work for others. But to your question, um, no, I'm not happy all the time. And I don't actually feel pressure to be. I am practicing all the time. That I can tell you. That's probably a relief to people who are trying hard and, and maybe struggling sometimes with the happier methods. So I'm sure they're glad to hear that. <laughs> have you gotten any of your family members to uh, join in on the happier method? I have. So I will tell you that um, when I began, you know, our as human beings, our emotions, I know, of course, everyone listening knows this, but our emotions are incredibly contagious, good and bad, right? We're just really connected to each other. And, you know, um, imagine like you're walking into a room and you know, maybe your colleagues have had an argument or someone in your family, you feel the tension, right? You don't need to know anything. So our emotions are contagious. And when I was going through my really difficult time in my life, my difficult emotions spread to everyone. They spread to my daughter, to my husband, to my parents who live nearby. And the flip is also true. When I began to really cultivate these skills, um, I didn't actually pressure my family in any way, but they picked them up. You know, I love seeing my 15 year old daughter, um, like talk about things she appreciates or, you know, one of my greatest gifts as a mom had been, um, she had this really difficult experience with, uh, friends at the end of eighth grade. And she wrote an essay for her school essay project about how learning self-compassion from her mom helped her get through this really challenging thing, you know, Wow. All the parents listening, I know you can appreciate how much that meant to me. Um, <laughs> That's the biggest win you know, of all. <laughs> my, oh, it's there's just nothing like it. You know, I, what's the expression? You're only as happy as your happiest child. I mean, it, it, we feel everything they feel, right? So, you know, it's been amazing to watch her pick it up. And um, my husband, both personally and uh, I mentioned, I do a lot of work with companies. We have like a whole happier at work program. And watching him really blossom as a leader by bringing these practices and skills to his team and himself. So absolutely. And the thing is, I haven't been preaching to them. I haven't been annoying for the most part, maybe a little bit, maybe a little <laughs> bit annoying. Let's just be honest here, <laughs> but not a ton. And mostly when people ask me, what is the best way? You know, one of the most common questions I get is, 
you know, I have a family member who is really unhappy or I have a colleague who is really unhappy. What's the best way I can get them to do these skills? The best way you can help others is by practicing yourself. Sometimes it's easy to put ourselves at the bottom of our to-do list, right? You know, so many responsibilities we have at work and with family. But when you recognize that when you don't cultivate your happiness or your emotional health, the impact on people around you is not neutral. It's actually negative. But the flip is also true. When you practice, when you cultivate your emotional health, when you make it a priority, you spread it to other people around you and you inspire them and encourage them to make these practices part of their lives simply by sharing how you're practicing. And it's been a huge lesson in my life. If my daughter and my husband were uh, here, they would be nodding enthusiastically. Um, but the biggest lesson I learned is it's, it's so much less about getting them to do it. It's about practicing myself and then sharing how I'm practicing that inspires them to make it, you know, to adopt these in their own way. Right. Some extra motivation for the benefits of focusing on yourself <laughs> before you can help other people. Exactly. Still there are days when I am tempted to put myself at the bottom of my to-do list. And I then, like, that's the thing that I use in my brain to shift is remind myself that when I don't invest in my happiness and emotional health, it actually has a negative impact on the people I love so much. And sometimes that's the reminder I need to practice. Certainly. A reminder that all of us could benefit from. If people wanted to find out more about this method and how they can practice it in their own lives, where can they where can they go? Two places. The first places to go is uh, to happier.com. It's spelled just like you think it is, happier.com. And there's you can learn more about the Happier Method, and there's tons of free blog posts and videos and ways that um, highly concrete ways that I share to practice these skills. So that's the first place. And the second is my book, which is called Happier Now, How to Stop Chasing Perfection and Embrace Everyday Moments. And the first half of the book is my story. Um, and the second half are the five skills. And I think something like 37 um, one to two minute uh, practices um, to help you make them part of your life. Natalie Kogan, thank you so much for talking with us today and sharing all these insights, and hopefully all of us can get to a happier place now. Thank you so much. For our next interview, let's join WebMD's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. John White. My guest today is Richard Dormant. He is the Editor-in-Chief of Men's Health with 25 editions in 35 countries. Men's Health is the world's largest men's magazine brand. Thanks for joining me today. Dr. White, it is a pleasure and thrill to be here. Why do you think men are harder to reach? When I see patients are, are mostly women. Why is it so hard to reach men? That's a really interesting point, and I think it gets to much larger forces of socialization and cultural conditioning, particularly as it relates to men. I think for basically millennia, uh, men were conditioned to not talk about themselves and to not complain and to not show weakness or vulnerability because that was somehow deemed non-masculine or unmanly. So um, I think probably over the last generation, but certainly over the last 10 years, I think you've seen a whole sea change in how men talk about and perceive things like health and wellness. And we see it in our audience and you see it in, st in statistics that more and more men are putting more and more time, energy, and effort into um, not only their, their bodies, but their, their minds and their lives. What do you see kind of are those trends in, in men's health and in what they're interested in and what they're going to talk about? So I hate to talk about men as like this monolithic block that like we all sort of have group think and we are, we're all sort of motivated by the same things, but I think there are a couple things going on there. 
One is, I think, um, as we are getting older and as we are, you know, more and more of us, I mean, I just turned 40. I can't believe I'm 40. I don't feel 40. I look at friends of mine who are turning 50 and you're like, oh my gosh, like this is what 50 is. And I think as we are redefining aging, I think we're seeing that we don't have to go the way of our dads, which was basically a sort of a long, slow decline into, you know, being the grandpa on the Simpsons. Um, and so I think weight loss is a part of that. I think just investing more time in the gym so that your body is stronger and you're looking the way that you want to look regardless of the age. Um, I think another part of that is social media. I think we're all much more aware of how we appear at any given time. And that's not just selfies, but that's Instagram, that's seeing yourself or avatars of yourself out in the world. Emojis. Um, yeah, well, emojis. Well, yeah, and there, but there's also a whole, you know, there's a clinical condition, body dysmorphia, of people um, not having a real accurate sense of what they look like. And that can be very dangerous and fatal at times as men and eating disorders are becoming more and more problematic. Um, but I think that's part of it as well, this sort of greater emphasis on um, not only appearance, but um, your brand, so to speak. And you've talked about body dysmorphia in the magazine, but at the same time, one could argue, you have celebrities on the cover of the magazine. Does that help promote this idea of unattainable images? That's a really good question. That's something we struggle with all the time. I think, you know, men's health as a brand is 31 years old, and its and its legacy and tradition um, is much more in line with what you're talking about. This sort of idealized man, six-pack abs. We joke about six-pack abs a lot. We don't, we never talk about that really anymore. Um, but I think we want to hold out hold out a healthy ideal, and we talk about things like we're offering goals and not guarantees. It's aspiration and ambition versus um, having to look an actual way. Um, and I think we're always really careful when we're talking about celebrities and, and looking the way that they look to talk about their trainers, to talk about their nutritionists, to talk about the team that really helps them optimize their life so that they can look and perform this way. I think to their great credit, most celebrities are only happy to do that. Nobody's pretending that they're doing this on their own. Um, and I think, by and large, our audience understands that that's what we're presenting. And I think we go at it from a place of empathy and generosity rather than um, condescending to them and saying that they're, they're less than. You've talked about issues of mental health, issues of motivation you've talked about recently. And then let's be very real. I could say even in my own instance, I woke up at 6 a.m. You know, I have young children to take care of with my wife in the morning. And then I, I'm have, so sorry. I have a dinner meeting in the evening. It'll be 9 o'clock. Am I really going to go to the gym. So wh where is that? You talk about that motivation and, and you reference that. You don't feel like going. You don't feel you don't even feel like exercising, let alone going yeah. somewhere. So so how do we address that and, and motivate men to really adopt these healthy behaviors? We want to stop looking at working out as an obligation and look at it as an opportunity to spend time with others. So maybe you don't have time to go lift weights for 45 minutes, but you might want to go hang out with you know friends and play basketball for 45 minutes. So you kind of accomplish two things there. You have the socialization aspect, which is incredibly good for your mental well-being, but you're also getting some fitness in. So it's just rethinking what we mean by fitness and by working out and trying to optimize it so that that you're getting more out of it. You often cover technology, gadgets, apps, things like that. Where, where do you see that uh, really helping us to, to reach our goals? Are, are those, for the most part, helpful, or, or 
maybe we don't really need them and we're getting too consumed with uh, how many steps we have a day. Yeah, I mean, I think like most technology, these are tools that can be used for good and that they can become problematic if used too much. Um, to your question about counting steps, like I think to a certain point that can be a helpful data point that helps sort of um, inform maybe broader trends in your life. Like maybe I'm not really walking around much these days. If you, But if you're counting literally the number of steps you take and you're like, I have to get another thousand in before I can eat dinner, like that's a problem. So as long as you're just looking at the technology as um, not just data points, but as useful information. Um, you can take or leave it, but it's just something that sort of informs your the way of you're looking at the world and, and how you're engaging with it, then great. But once it starts, sort of starts to really dictate what you're doing, and if you're unable to do the things you want to do without it, that's where it becomes problematic. And again, I would say that about all technology, not just fitness and wellness technology. And when we talk about health, it, it's really, we're spending a lot of time talking about fitness and exercise, but obviously food and diet play an important role. And, and where do you see the kind of that balance is? Is it, do men have more challenges addressing issues of physical activity, or is it more about, you know, we're not eating the right foods for a variety of reasons? And, you know, people will say abs are made in the kitchen, not in the gym, whether or not that's true or not. But the point is, people often forget it's also important what one puts in one's mouth, and, and maybe we're not focusing enough on that. I think that's absolutely right. And I think particularly with the rise of interest in things like the keto diet, which is... Um, a very tough diet. Just it's sort of brutal, actually, and it's something that we try to sort of handle with kid gloves, knowing that our audience is is um, really interested in it, and also knowing that it can be effective if done under certain and very strict parameters. It's not for everybody, so I think there's a lot of interest in these things, but it's incredibly important that we are coming at it um, both as journalists, but also as advocates for our reader. What do you see is on the horizon for men in, in terms of of wellness? My mandate at the brand from the very beginning has been to help sort of help redefine health as a holistic mindset. And so again, it's it's whole body, whole mind, whole life. And if one of those things isn't firing, isn't doing well, then the other two are going to suffer. So it's not just investing in fitness and strength. And again, those, those can mean all different kinds of things. It's not just dumbbells in the gym, um, but also having a regular relationship with a physician in your life, um, really knowing um, what's happening in your body so that you can respond to it and be sensitive to it. But then there's mental health, which I think is becoming such an important conversation that more and more men are, are eager to have. And again, we're not just talking about things like anger, anxiety, and depression, which are rather more clinical conditions, but things like grit and resilience and compassion and this whole vocabulary of social emotional life that again, for millennia, we didn't have. That's not to say like you don't smoke or you don't eat meat. Like that's, we mean like, having a healthy relationship with your partner, um, being the best type of parent and the type of parent you want to be, having a, a great working situation where you're feeling, if not totally satisfied and, and totally fulfilled, then at least not burned out. All of those things lead into a healthy lifestyle, um, and all of those things really feed up into what we mean by health. So I think more and more our audience, and I would say most people that I know, really think of it as this sort of holistic whole world conception. I want to thank my guest, Richard Dormant, the editor-in-chief of Men's Health. Thanks for taking the time to chat this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you. Hi, 
I'm Natalie Kogan. You just heard me talk about the happier method. And here I am sharing with you the tweak of the week. I call it three gratitudes before your first email. We all eat open email in the morning, whether we want to or not. We know we reach for our phone and do it. So before you write your first email or read your first email of the day, can you jot down three specific things you appreciate? Maybe you jot them down in a journal or in a notes app. Maybe your first email of the day to a friend, to a family member, to a colleague is with three specific things you're grateful for. Um, you know, it's easier for us to build a new habit when we connect it to something we're already doing. So connecting your practice of gratitude every morning to before you do your email becomes a powerful reminder. And I just find it so helpful to ground yourself in appreciation and gratitude before you let your day take you away. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you can tune in next time. Until then, keep up with WebMD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now.